Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we have the prayer of Hannah recorded. And what a prayer it is. What a God-fearing woman she was. And what great things she accomplished in that little boy in the five years that she had him, which we considered last Lord's Day. In the first ten verses of 1 Samuel 2 is a prayer by Hannah as she rejoices in the Lord's deliverance of her from the provoking of her enemy, which was the other wife of Elkanah, Peninnah. Every year when they took their family vacation and family time of worship to go to Shiloh and worship there, she would be provoked by this enemy. Hannah's prayer continues to rise as we looked at it last Lord's Day until she's prophesying of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 10th verse. I just want the third verse for us this morning, and I want to take from that verse a direction from the Lord that we might rejoice in Him today and in His great victory over the words of men. There are things being said today, as every effort is made by the wicked in our nation and other nations to overthrow the Word of God to overthrow the institutions that have been considered inviolate from the beginning. They're changing things in my short lifetime that are hard to imagine. When I was a boy, to imagine same-sex marriages was just about impossible to imagine. You couldn't even say the word. Nobody said the words. But to even try to say the words, you wouldn't have even hardly understood what they were talking about in a lifetime. They're opening their mouths against the God of heaven. The God of heaven will have the last laugh. As we read in Psalm 52 and could read in other places as well. Let me read to you this third verse. I encourage you, if you want to read a prayer that's as good as any in the Bible, it's the first ten verses of 1 Samuel 2. What a privilege to grow up with a mother like this that can pray like this about the enemies of God and about her enemies and about the Lord having the victory over them. Verse 3, Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Hannah had someone who opened her mouth in arrogancy against her, and that was Peninnah. But not only is Hannah here referring to God silencing her personal enemy, and for those who want to rejoice in the Lord, Hannah went on to have three more sons and two more daughters. And every night when the paper landed at the, in the driveway, the paper was about Hannah's son, Samuel. Nothing has ever heard of any of the children of Peninnah. But, but Samuel was great. He's one of the five great men of the Bible as found in Jeremiah 15, 1, Ezekiel 14, 14. He's one of the great men of Scripture. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. That's what I want to deal with today. Is the Lord gaining victory over men as they speak blasphemous, terrible things against heaven, against the Bible, and against His people? God is jealous of His glory, and He's not going to allow men to arrogantly blaspheme Him or it for long. Look at Daniel chapter 4 with me in verse 37, where Nebuchadnezzar admitted a fact about our God that he had to learn the hard way. And we'll be back to Daniel before the day's over. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 37, 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, that means I've been to graduate school at the hands of the Most High God, and I've learned a few things. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, all whose works are truth and His ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, He is able to abase. Because the proudest man on earth had been abased. And that was King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. I want to, I just showed you that God will abase the proud. And now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 about God's furious vengeance against His enemies. When you read the paper, you see things on blogs or news sites on the internet, you can rejoice there's a God in heaven that sees them, reads them, hears them, and will respond accordingly. And we can be thankful that we have a God like that. We should rejoice in it. Daniel, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 41. If I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. There is this gigantic contrast and chasm between the contrast of God's dealing with His enemies and God's dealing with His people. We saw it in Psalm 52, from a green olive tree in the house of the Lord to one that's going to be destroyed where no one can find Him. In the case of Doeg the Edomite. We saw it in Psalm 144, where it was strange children whose mouths speak of vanity, and they may even creep into the church of God. They creep into all churches. Their mouths speak of vanity. They profess that they love Christ, but they don't. Their right hand, when we give them a right hand of fellowship, is a right hand of falsehood. But God will judge them, and David is praying for him to be rid of them, for God to come down from heaven and get rid of them. Because to have a traitor in your midst is terrible in the military, and it's terrible in the church of God. And then he describes... The, the, the palace and the similitude of stones and God's blessing upon the people whose God is the Lord. There's so many things that we could look at in the way of introduction to this topic, and I, I want to stop with only one more. And let's go with to Psalm 94. There's much more that will be in the outline on the Internet for you to look at if you want to consider this subject further. But there's so much ground to cover in so little time. I want to hurry on. One more passage just laying a foundation for us about famous last words when men open their mouths and speak against the Most High God and then God judges them and shuts those mouths and overthrows them in their intentions. I'm going to read to you the first 11 verses of Psalm 94. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth. O God, to whom vengeance belongeth. Show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. 
Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. 3,000 a day in our nation. Yet they say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, shall not he correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall not he know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Praise God. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God I love and you love. And He is our Father in heaven by predestinated grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we use the expression famous last words, it could mean the last words spoken by a famous person before they die to meet God. And we have those in the Bible as well, and we have those in history. And it's quite a study, if you were to make it, to look at the dying words of men. The righteous die, in many cases, very differently from the wicked. And there's many of those recorded on the Internet that you can look at at your convenience. Deuteronomy chapter 33, the last five verses, we're not going to turn and look at it for time's sake. They're the last words of Moses, and they are magnificent. Before the Lord leads him up into Mount Nebo, and he views the land of Canaan, and the Lord buries him there. You know, Eli was once sitting on a stone, and he asked a courier that had been sent from the army that was at battle with the Philistines, What is there done, my son? Those are the last words from Eli, because the Benjaminite that came with the news, there's been a great slaughter. Your two sons have been killed. The ark of God has been taken. And in grief, he fell backwards off that stone. He was a very heavy man. He broke his neck. And so his last words were, What is there done, my son? When the news got to his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, one of those two sons, a priest that had been killed, her last words were, Ichabod, the glory is departed from Israel. You can go through the pages of Scripture and find these. David's last words are recorded for us in 2 Samuel 23, and they are wonderful. These be the last words of David. You know, David had sin in his life, and it's all exposed to the whole world. The world's read about it. The Christian world's read about it for 3,000 years, the sins of David. And yet on his deathbed, who would want? how can you die a better death than David? These be the last words of David. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. And this is all my salvation and all my desire, though he make it not to grow. Wonderful. They're in the Bible for us. We don't mean famous last words this way today when we think about the last words of dying men. You know, Zechariah is the last martyr that Jesus Christ gave credit to from the Old Testament. 
when he told his generation that was going to kill him, how wicked they were, he said, this generation will have brought upon it all the righteous blood ever shed in the earth from Abel to Zechariah. Who was Zechariah? Zechariah was the prophet son of Jehoiada, the high priest. Jehoiada, the high priest, is the man who took the baby Joash and hid him in the temple for seven years until he was seven years old and then brought him forth, killed the queen Athaliah, and made him king. What a wonderful man and what a wonderful, touching personal story about the relationship between Jehoiada and Joash. And as long as Jehoiada was alive and the Lord let him live a very long life, exceptionally long for his era, Joash was a good king. But as soon as he died, Joash became a terrible king and his son Zechariah stood up and told those people that they were sinning against the Lord and if they didn't repent, God was going to judge them. And Joash, sitting on his throne, ordered him to be stoned to death. And while he was being stoned to death, his final words were, The Lord look upon it and require it. Because there was the man's son that had kept Joash alive as a baby, and Joash ordered him to be stoned. These are little things in the Bible that when you read them, your skin should crawl with fear of what's going to happen to Joash. And all you have to do is read the rest of the story of Joash to find out what happened to him. Because that man cried out as the stones busted up his body. The Lord look upon it and require it. These are the last words of men in the Bible. I like these last words. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Aren't those wonderful? How about these last words? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. This is the Lord Jesus Christ with greater faith than you'll ever have on the cross of Calvary who had earlier said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He had such great faith that though he was separated in fellowship from his father because of your sins and my sins, he could end his life by saying, Father, into thy hands I leave this body and commend my spirit into your hands. He was confident by faith that he would see the thief that day in paradise. Deacon Stephen's last words were pretty good, weren't they? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And we read testimonies like that in Fox's Book of Martyrs. But there is another way to die. The Roman Emperor Julian, known in history as Julian the Apostate, who tried to rid the Roman Empire of Christianity in his reign in the 4th century, his last words, are you ready? You have won, O Galilean. Praise God. Julian the Apostate, trying to rid the Roman Empire of Christianity. You have won, O Galilean. Are you getting excited about those kind of famous last words? That's not what I'm going to deal with today. I just thought that you might enjoy some of these. William Tyndale, strangled and being burned at the stake. O Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And 60 years later, there were other events that happened between 
his death and King James ordering a new revision of the scriptures that involved kings and scripture. But we know that we have a King James Bible held in our laps because, in part, by those dying words of William Tyndale, the first man to publish the Bible in English. Voltaire, an atheist. Final words? I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. Oh, Jesus Christ! David Hume, an atheist, while dying in utter despair, I am in the flames! Thomas Paine, an atheist, I would give worlds if I had them, if the age of reason had never been published. That's what he wrote against our religion. Oh Lord, help me! Christ, help me! Stay with me! It is hell to be left alone! Final words. There's no other word. Thomas Scott, another atheist. Until this moment, I thought there was neither a God nor a hell. Now I know and feel that there are both, and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. Alistair Crowley, the wickedest man in the history of the British Empire, and one of the philosophers behind Freemasonry and about every other aspect of wickedness that you can find among English-speaking people. If you don't know anything about him, then you'll have to go look. You don't want to know anything about him. His final words, I am perplexed. Satan, get out! And there's others. I want to use famous last words differently. I want the famous last words to be arrogant words against God that he used against men and then judged them for them. And I want you to rejoice so that when you see the news, you won't fear and you won't tremble and you'll know that God hears and sees and understands and God will require it of this generation and God will require it of those that open their mouths. So... And I want you to be very careful about how we speak. We want to be careful about our words. Do you know that this God of the Bible, this God of heaven and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, said this, that in the day of judgment we shall give an account for every idle word. Ephesians chapter 5, that was Matthew 12. In Ephesians chapter 5 it says that God is going to judge the world for filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting. Let's hate those things as they come out of our mouths. Amen. Famous last words, as I want to use it, mean arrogant words against God that He quickly judges. Here's an obvious one, and I want to remind you of it. The White Star ship line of England, created in 1912, the largest, most luxurious ship the world had ever seen. It was named the Titanic. It took its, vaden, its maiden voyage on April 10th out of Southampton, England. That's the France side of England. It had 16 watertight compartments and never had there been such luxury afloat on the seas. It was advertised by the White Star Line in one of their brochures as designed to be unsinkable. 
And so it's referred to in history as the unsinkable Titanic. When asked by a passenger if it was truly unsinkable, a crew member said to one of the passengers, even God could not sink this ship. That passenger is known by name, and she was asking because it was a fearful thing at times to sail and to to go by ship in those days because ships did sink. Oh, this ship had 16 watertight compartments. And it was just fabulous in the engineering of the day, and man had advanced so far in in their Darwinian evolution that the engineering, the captain of this ship, the most esteemed captain of the White Star Line, said that engineering had brought shipping to such a place of of progress and design and ingenuity. In his words, I cannot imagine how a modern ship can founder. How a modern ship could founder. To founder means to fill up with water and go to the bottom. But when you've got 70,000 tons of steel, why do you think it's going to stay afloat? Unless there's a prophet nearby named Elisha that could make axe heads float in 2 Kings 6. When the New York office of the White Star Line was informed early in the morning of April 15th that the Titanic had hit an iceberg and was in trouble, PAS Franklin, their vice president, made this public release. And I quote, We place absolute confidence in the Titanic. We believe the boat is unsinkable. When those words were uttered, the ship was already at the bottom of the North Atlantic, with 1,502 lives lost. The point being, the basis for what I'm preaching to you in the way of an illustration. Even God couldn't sink this ship. I wouldn't want to be on a ship where anyone has said God couldn't sink this ship. 1,502 lives lost. If you were able to jump clear of falling funnels, and it had four, if you were able to, to avoid the vacuum of that ship going down in the water and sucking everything behind it, if you were able to get into the water, you would die in two minutes of hypothermia. Even God couldn't sink this ship. Those are famous last words. So I want, so now you understand what I mean by famous last words, and the Bible is filled with them because God takes it personally when someone says, even God couldn't sink this ship. Adolf Hitler, in 1934, and this is documented in one of the greatest propaganda films ever made in 1935, entitled Triumph of the Will. He said, and I quote, it is our will that this state shall endure for a thousand years. We are happy to know that the future is ours entirely. You know, it's pretty nice in a time of peace to have one million German soldiers all going, Heil Hitler! In a time of peace, with one million of them doing it, it's pretty impressive. It is our will that this state shall endure for a thousand years. We are happy to know that the future is entirely ours. Nine short years later, in 1943, after losing the Sixth Army under Friedrich von Paulus, one of the greatest generals in the history of the world, and about a million German and Axis forces, 
in a proportionate amount of equipment, when he was given the news that they had surrendered against his will, his words were, the God of war has gone over to the other side. Praise God. Yes, I think so. Okay, let's look at the Word of God. You know, when someone says, even God couldn't sink this ship, then you can appreciate the sinking of the Titanic. Though I regret the loss of the lives, I trust that in the hands of the Almighty God. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. God's hand was in that ship as to who made it into lifeboats and who didn't, and how they went down. Some of the richest men in the world were on that boat. You know, in Adolf Hitler, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God and is ruling over the nations with a rod of iron, dashing them in pieces. After that, the German, the German nation, that little tiny thing that it is, was split in half into West Germany, East Germany. He dashes the nations in pieces as and when and how he pleases. And we trust him fully. The governments of this world are not the highest government. There is higher than they, as Ecclesiastes 5.8 tells us, and the higher one is the one we should trust. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 14, we have these famous last words. I will be like the Most High. If you want to see the full context of that statement, you can turn to Isaiah 14. These are the words of Lucifer the created cherub of God, the highest angel that we know about in the Bible, he foolishly said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. This is in verse 13. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I have always enjoyed one thing right off the bat when we think of this expression by the devil. He doesn't say I will be greater than the Most High because that's incomprehensible even to the highest intellect ever made by the hands of God. I will be like the Most High. He just wanted to be like the Lord Jehovah and he was intent on that in Isaiah chapter 14 verses 13 and 14. I will be like the Most High. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6 that the sin of the devil was pride. And that's why churches and ministers are not supposed to ordain young novices because with the responsibility and the position of influence and leadership over a church, they can be puffed up in to the condemnation of the devil. And that is pride. Yet in the same passage, if you were to look at verses 12 and 15, surrounding those words by Lucifer and the devil, who is the devil, we have these words of God. How art thou fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. There's God's answer to him. In Matthew chapter 25, when it refers to those on the right hand and those on the left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say unto those wicked, He's going to say, Enter ye cursed into fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There is a place of eternal torment made for the devil and his angels. And the devils know about it because during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, if in Matthew you were to back up to chapter 8 and verse 29, they fell at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and worshipped Him and asked Him if He had come to torment them before the time. 
They know there's a time and a place of torment and that the Lord Jesus Christ is in charge of it. That is our Savior. That is our God. Let us rejoice and take comfort. The devil cannot even enter a herd of swine without express leave of the King of Heaven. They had to beg to enter into a pig. That's our God and our Savior. Famous last words, I will be like the Most High. Turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. Oh, I love our God. Do you love our God and Father? You know, fathers like to do impressive things for their sons, whether it be on a bench press or with some intellectual project that they might have from their profession or whatever, the Lord likes to show His power to us that we might delight in it, trust in it, believe in it, and never fear what man can do unto us. Exodus chapter 5. I begin reading, and you'll know the famous last words as soon as we come to them. Exodus 5, 1. And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Exodus 5, 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Can you hear those words? Does your skin crawl with the anticipation that something serious is about to happen? Who is the Lord? And notice, when he repeats it back to Moses, that Lord is in all capital letters, meaning that that is the sacred Hebrew tetragrammaton for I am that I am. That is J-H-V-H. That is Jehovah. That is I am that I am. Who is He that I should obey Him? Well, now our God is not so easy that you can just pull a switch and electrocute a man. That's too easy. You know, our nation pampers them in a country club for on average eight years before someone pulls the switch. They get their last meal. You know, whatever they want, they run around town and bring them their last meal before a switch is pulled. But God never planned it to be that simple. You know, the guillotine, He could have invented in the Old Testament just as easily as stoning. But stoning doesn't get over in a second. Stoning doesn't get over in a minute. You would fall on the ground in a fetal position and protect yourself as well as you could while your bones were broken by stones and you were bleeding internally before you would get to die. I'm not trying to be gross or or uncouth in the pulpit. I just want you to think that the God of heaven wants there to be punishment executed upon the wicked. If someone commits murder and tortures someone or kidnaps a child, this is the way they were supposed to die, by stoning. And when it comes to Pharaoh, the Lord isn't going to send a bolt of lightning out of heaven and electrocute him in his chair. He wasn't in the electric chair. He was going to have a while to think about it. And so there were ten plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. You know, several of those plagues, the first few, his magicians were able to duplicate, and then there was the plague of the flies, and his magicians came to him and said, we can't do this one. This is the finger of God. 
What do we call a tornado that reaches grade six on the tornado scale? That requires winds of 260 miles an hour. On the Fujito tornado scale, it's a number six. It's called the finger of God by the world. 260 miles per hour. The one in Oklahoma, I believe, was a four at around 200 miles per hour. The finger of God. This man said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, God destroyed the Egyptians slowly by turning their water into blood, sending frogs into their kneading trough so that they had frog sandwiches when they didn't ask for them lice everywhere, flies everywhere, moraine upon their beasts, boils upon humans, men, hail, locusts, darkness, the death of their firstborn, and then he slowly let Pharaoh think about who the Lord was in the midst of the Red Sea when he took the wheels off his chariots and he drove the chariots furiously, but they wouldn't go very far on an axle. And then the water looked very high. And it looked like a very dangerous place to be. And then he met the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? These are famous last words. You say you're getting too much pleasure out of Exodus and the first 14 chapters. I'm getting just the right amount of pleasure out of it. Because godly women, godly women when this was all over, gathered their tambourines and took up a dance on the shore of the Red Sea. It was a dance because they had to step over the waterlogged bodies of Egyptians that had made it to shore that had been able to rip their armor off fast enough before they drowned under the water. It says so. Have you read your Bible? Miriam takes up a timbrel and they danced and they sang praises to the Most High. And we've rejoiced about it ever since and so have our brethren in the faith. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 9, it tells us in Romans chapter 9, that even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, Pharaoh. You were conceived, you were carried for nine months, you survived birth, and you survived every military campaign you were in as a young man, and you made it to the throne of Egypt. I have raised you up for this purpose, that I might show my power and my might in thee. Old Testament, New Testament, same God, no difference. This is the God of heaven. We're his little children. He's loved us. He has predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, and we want to rejoice He will have the last laugh against this nation. When I read some of their ridiculous statements, when I read their blasphemies against the Word of God, when I read their blasphemies against the God of heaven, when I read their ridicule of Baptist and Bible preachers, all of that just grinds me inside, but I know there's a God in heaven, and I'm trusting Him, and He can do it better than I can. Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will repay, saith the Lord. So we trust Him. There's no enemy that you should fear. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? Oh. Now this is that Moses that when leaving the backside of the desert and coming back to Egypt, the Lord tried to kill him in an inn, by the way. He was in a holiday inn with his family and he hadn't circumcised his boys, and the Lord tried to kill him there. I mean, when Moses would have heard those words from Pharaoh's mouth, who is the Lord, that I should obey him? And we should. We have a greater level of knowledge than Moses did. By reading the pages of Scripture, we can see thousands of years of a panoramic view of God's dealings against his enemies and for his people. 
Numbers chapter 11. I find in verse 4, at the end of the verse, these words. Who shall give us flesh to eat? We're sick of this manna. Look at, look at them. Look at these people. Don't ever let our children do this. Children, don't ever do this. Adults, don't ever do this. Don't ever complain or murmur about our food. We're so blessed. We're, nobody's ever been blessed like we have. We have more varieties of everything than Solomon could even imagine in the wisdom of his mind. Look at verse 5. We remember, they're, they're acting like Egypt was a paradise and that it had an all-you-could-eat buffet three times a day set up. We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. This is ruining our lives. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Free bread that tasted like honeycomb. Every morning, all you had to do was go out and scoop it up. If you were tired that morning and hadn't scooped much, when you got inside and measured it, it was the same amount as yesterday morning that you worked hard for. You didn't have to work hard for it. I shouldn't have said that. Manna. We're sick of this manna. Who will give us flesh? We want meat. God sent them quail three feet deep, 20 miles in every direction. It's recorded here in Numbers 11. And each man, the whole nation, stood there for 36 hours. That day, that night, the next day. They stood there for 36 hours and piled them up. They got their little bobcats out, their lawnmowers. They pushed, pulled trailers put they, until they, they were heaping them up. He that gathered the least had 100 bushels of quail. The, the Numbers 11 tells us that. This offended God so much, then they stood there with these massive piles and just bit in, they didn't even care about cooking it. They just wanted their quail and God killed them because they had murmured against the Lord and were so ungrateful as they were. Let us be thankful for all the things that God has given us. This offended God, so he killed many before they could eat it. And you know, the Bible also tells us several things about this particular event of murmuring. It tells us in Psalm 106, verses 13 through 15, that though he gave them their request, they said, we don't like your manna, we want meat. So he sends them quail. He gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their hearts. You be careful as you pray and ask for things of this life. A better job, more income, bigger house, these natural things. Because God's able to give them to you, but if that's the priority in your life, he'll send leanness into your soul. Would to God... If we had a choice, we would, I hope we would say, give me a fat soul and a lean life. Rather than a fat life and a lean soul. But what a lesson. Who shall give us flesh to eat? We want flesh. We want flesh. We want flesh. Rang from the cafeteria. We're sick of manna. Children, if your mother serves the same thing four nights out of seven in a week, rejoice that there's enough to go four nights. There have been many children before that when something was served by their mother, there wasn't enough for the next night. That was all you got. Famous last words. Well, now, poor Moses, 
they were pushing him hard here. And if you were to read all of Numbers 11, you can look at verse 12. He's just, he's boo, he's, he's crying out to the Lord that he has to carry this rebellious people with him. Have I conceived all this people? Are they mine? These babies that are whining all the time? Lord, I'm sick of them. And so he's under duress. And so Moses has some famous last words here as well. And his famous last words are found in verse 21. Moses said, well, let's, let me back up. God told Moses, just get the people together and give them this message. It's in verses 18 through 20. Get the people together and give them this message. I'm going to give you meat to eat. I'm not going to give you meat to eat for one day. It's in verse 19. I'm not going to give it to you for two days. I'm not going to give you meat for five days. I'm not going to give you meat for 10 days, nor 20 days, but even a whole month until it come out at your nostrils, until it be loathsome unto you. And you wonder about my pulpit manner? Look at the words that God told Moses to speak to the people and to tell them, I'm going to give you meat 30 days in a row until it comes out your nose, until you hate it and despise it. It's amazing. After we eat something a few days in a row, we do get tired of it, don't we? We don't want as much. And Moses, here's what Moses does now. This is the, in verse 21. Moses said, The people, the people among whom I am, are 600,000 footmen, Lord. We're a, we're a nation of two million people. We have 600,000 footmen. And thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they may eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them? Are we going to kill every living creature that we have in our flocks and herds? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? And the Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? After all those miracles, after all the evidence that God had given Moses in his life, the Lord has to ask him, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. And so I want you to see that not only did Israel do some complaining, but Moses did some skepticizing, some disbelief. Lord, there's 600,000 footmen. How in the world can you do this? You would think that a man who saw the Red Sea divided and all the plagues of Egypt and water out of the rock on many occasions and manna itself is such a miracle. Every single day was a miracle. So Moses got to see the same thing. A day's journey in every direction. You can look at the camp of Israel and, and take a day's journey out, let's say 20 miles. You know, you walk three and a half miles an hour. It takes you five and a half hours. So it's a 20, 20 miles out, a radius out from the camp, and it's three feet deep, two cubits. It's three feet deep. They're just stacked there, and so they stood for 36 hours. Famous last words. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You don't need to turn to it. I'm going to read you one verse from there about this particular event. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says this, Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. See, the Bible makes reference to this event several times. The Bible makes reference to Pharaoh several times. These events that I'm giving you in the history of God's dealings with men are repeated several times for the learning of His people. And we should rejoice at them and we should make sure that we don't lust after things and, and, and so that it causes us to be unthankful for the things God has given us. Yeah. Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them? Well, a little breeze blew that night and out of the Red Sea came enough quail to be three foot deep in 20 
in a 20-mile radius out from the camp of Israel. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 13 is the 12 tribes sent in to spy out the land of Canaan to come back and tell Israel what a wonderful land it was. But when they came back, 10 of those spies stood up and said, it was a wonderful land. The land God has promised for us is beautiful. Look at this bunch of grapes that it takes two men to carry on a stave between them. It's beautiful, but there's giants there. We can't take it. We felt like grasshoppers in their sight, and they knew we were grasshoppers. It was terrible. And so Israel starts a bawling about how scary it is to go into the land of Canaan after all these miracles in the land of Egypt, after all of God's mercy in the year, getting them through the wilderness to this particular place. And so they said, verse, verse 1 of Numbers 14, all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. Are you feeling a little guilty right now that you ever cry or weep or get discouraged or feel like something's impossible for the Lord? We shouldn't. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or, Would God we had died in this wilderness! Those are famous last words. Do you understand why they're famous last words? Would to God we had died in this wilderness. You want to send us into that land of Canaan so that they can kill us and our children will be a prey to them. The Lord heard all of that. So God said, I've heard their prayer. I'll let them die in the wilderness. So they wandered around for 40 years until everyone that was 20 years of age and older died. And the children that they thought would be a prey, those children took the land of Canaan and populated houses that were filled with fine furniture gathered over many generations, used the water from wells that had been dug, used the grapes from vineyards that were well mature. Unbelievable. The children. We're we're scared about our children. We're scared about our children. There's giants in the land. We should have died in this wilderness than getting in there and having the giants kill us in a battle and then leaving our children exposed to them. No trust in the Lord. You need to trust the Lord for your children. He's a better parent than you could even imagine being, let alone what you actually are. Oh, He can take care of your children. He only wants you to do your reasonable best and trust Him for the rest. Except the Lord keep the city, the, wake, the watchman waketh but in vain. Except the Lord build the house... They labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep your children, you're not going to keep them. But the Lord can keep them. And don't start worrying about, it's it's all in your hands to keep your children. The Lord can keep them. And He can do marvelous things with them. And He did marvelous things with these children. They took the land of Canaan and killed all those giants. And Caleb wanted first dibs on the giants. Famous last words. What were their famous last words? Would to God we had died in this wilderness. Oh, are you? is that a prayer request? The God of heaven said, you want to die in the wilderness instead of the land? Okay, have it your way. And so the Lord gave them that. Amen. Numbers chapter 16. Korah. Numbers 16.1. He's a Levite. Korah. 
Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab and On, son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. So we've got some Levites and some Reubenites here. Their names are Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On. And they rose up with 250 mighty princes of the congregation and came to Moses. And their words are in the middle of verse 3. Ye take too much upon you. Seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them, wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Moses and Aaron, you're too ambitious. You have forced yourself upon us. You're an overbearing dictator types. We've all got just as much of the Holy Spirit as you do. We're just as capable of leading as you are. You take too much upon you. You should divvy up your authority and power and give us some of it. Moses never wanted this job one second in his life. Moses didn't want to come back from keeping sheep with the uh, with the, the daughter of Jethro, his wife, and his sons there. He didn't want to come back to Egypt. He didn't want to lead this nation. He had asked God to deliver him from leading this nation. And now they were accusing him of a power grab? Hello? You take too much upon you. There wasn't a holy man among them. All the holiness of these 254 combined was garbage compared to Moses and Aaron. Just look at the results of what happened. Their arrogance in speaking such things against the meekest man on the face of the earth. God the Holy Spirit said that the last man that ever wanted that job, that would ever want to put himself up in front of people, was Moses. And we've been through this chapter before. However, there's some other good good words here. Verse 12. Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram to appear before him. Verse 12. Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, we will not come up. We're at our tents, and we ain't going to come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey. No, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Egypt was a land that flowed with milk and honey? Is it a small thing that you've brought us up out of? Do you see how people get twisted in their ideas of what's right, what's fair, what's good, what's true? Have we ever had those that hate the Lord leave this congregation and on their way out tell us what a bunch of ugly sinners we are and how they have a closer walk with the Lord than they've ever had before? Have you ever heard it? Their mouth utters vanity and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Their mind and heart is no better than these people. Look at how they think. Look at how they talk. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in this wilderness? except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us. The only reason you brought us out here is because you want to be an overbearing, manipulating dictator over us. Moreover, thou hast not brought us unto a land that floweth with milk and honey, or giveth, given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Those are my famous last words from Dathan and Abiram. Are you going to put our eyes out? There's a God in heaven, my brethren. Moses and Aaron are scared. There's 254 against one. The whole congregation's murmuring and backing these princes of Israel. Moses never wanted the job. God gave him the job and he was going to fulfill it. 
And he, he says it here, I never took one thing from you men. Why are you angry at me? And the Lord said, warn everybody to get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I'll show you a new thing in the earth. I'm not going to gouge their eyes out. I'm not going to gouge their eyes out. Just tell everybody to back up away from their tents so that I can show you a new thing. And the earth opened up. There was a spontaneous earthquake, and the earth opened up, and they and their tents and their wives and their children and their parked cars and their snowmobiles and everything that they had, their flocks, their herds, fell down in and were swallowed up alive. Famous last words, ye take too much upon you. We're all holy. You going to gouge our eyes out? All you did this for was because you like a position of power over people. The meekest man in the face of the earth. Those are famous last words. Korah and company. One more before we go to our break. Oh Lord, we love you. We love the way that you defend your servants. We love the way you defend your church. We love the way you defend your word. In Judges chapter 16, Delilah has seduced and ruined Samson, and he's now grinding for the Philistines. And they've got him in some sort of a cage set up where the Philistines can wander by and look at Samson grinding grain for them. And they mock him and rejoice with them, and they foolishly praise their god Dagon. As they, would, as they walk by and see him in there going around in circles or however they had it set up, pushing a grinding wheel... This man that had killed so many of them during his life, their words were, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And so they're rejoicing. That's in verse 24. Then they say, Let's get together a big feast and celebration here in the temple of our God, Dagon. And while they were there and they were merry, they'd been drinking and they were having a party. There were hot dog vendors and everything going throughout this temple. There were 3,000 that were gathered on the rooftop itself looking down as they bring out Samson. Their words were, call for Samson that he may make a sport. Yes, Samson has an idea for a sport. Call for Samson that he may make us sport. That's Judges 16 and verse 25. And God gave Samson the last laugh that day as he destroyed more in his death than he'd ever destroyed in his life. And he asked the Lord God, give me my strength back one more time. And little pup, would you please lead? I'm tired. Would you please lead me to the two pillars that hold this whole thing up? And he wrapped his arms around them and he bowed forward with all his might. And God gave him the petition of his soul and he killed those Philistines that were mocking him. But they said, make us sport. Show us something. He did. Praise the Lord. This is the God of the Bible. He hasn't changed a bit. He's the same God today as He was then. And when you read or when you hear about the wickedness of this nation as it implodes upon itself in immorality and anti-God thinking and rebellion against the institutions, institutions that God's given us, if and when there's legislation passed against our free worship of God, and right now we have it and we're going to use it, and so we try to spread His Word as far as we can, even though we're a small congregation, the Lord will defend us. He will defend you individually. He'll defend His ministers. He'll defend His church. He'll defend His Word. And we can see it throughout the pages of Scripture and the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. 
that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I trust that you can rejoice in all of these things, giving God all the glory, for He is worthy to be praised. Amen.